Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is episode 51, Public Option, Unions, Obligation, Part 2. James McGee joins us again. As mentioned in Part 1, Mr. McGee has spent his career in and around collectively bargained benefit plans, especially health care plans. He has primarily worked on union benefit plans, which are technically known as Taft-Hartley plans. Mr. McGee recently retired after 17 years working for the Transit Employees Health and Welfare Fund as its executive director. The fund provides the health care benefits for the active and retired members of ATU Local 689, employed by the Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority. Mr. McGee is on the steering committee of the Labor Campaign for Single Payer, the Montgomery County Chapter of Healthcare Now, and on the Board of Directors of the Universal Healthcare Action Network. In Part 1, we discussed problems with the public option. Part 2 discusses how unions would benefit from Medicare for All and why health care is an obligation. And now, Public Option, Unions, Obligation, Part 2. As I mentioned in the introduction, you spent your career in and around union benefit plans, and especially health care plans. Do you think single-payer Medicare for All would benefit union workers? Absolutely, unequivocally, for several reasons. The main reason is that it would take health care off of the bargaining table. And you cannot imagine what a relief that would be. And it's a, a bit of a challenge sometimes to convince union leaders uh of that because they have such a stake in the process. But over the past, as long as I've been in this industry, healthcare is one of the leading causes of, of strikes, uh, failure to reach uh, agreement on healthcare. It is the, the issue that drags out collective bargaining in almost every case because for the past 30 years, Unions and employees have been retreating on health care. I gave a series of presentations to some ATU audiences uh, recently, and I usually ask the audience, has anybody won any improvements in their health care plan recently in bargaining? And it is rare that, uh, that someone does. And, and this group uh, has a lot of Canadians, and almost always the ones who raise their hands are Canadians. So when you take healthcare uh, out of the out of the equation, you know, and first of all, healthcare is a complicated issue. I mean, if there's one thing that uh, that 
Mr. Trump got right, and that is that healthcare is complicated. And too often, uh, the ones bargaining for healthcare at the local union level really don't understand exactly what it is they're bargaining for. So they get taken across. It's sad, but it, I've seen it happen too often. So take healthcare off the bargaining table, focus on improving wages, working conditions, pensions. Be creative about what other things your employer can sponsor, childcare, educational benefits, legal benefits, all kinds of things that, that could enrich the working experience and not have to worry about healthcare. And if you take healthcare off the bargaining table, you also do something else. You remove that job lock. And when you do that, then you make your employees more mobile. And when you, your employees are more mobile, the only way that your employer can keep you is by paying you more. Just to clarify, a job lock is when somebody stays with their current employer because of the health benefits. Correct. Okay. And that works both ways. I mean, it, it benefits small employers because they can't compete on healthcare, right? So they're basically almost restricted on who they can recruit. And when you take healthcare out of the mix in the world of employment, you really make the whole market for employees much more competitive. You make it more attractive. Uh, you, you, you open up the pool for small employers. You make large employers pay their employees more. It's a win-win from the employee perspective. One thing I want to emphasize, and this is true for most workers, even for union workers, one thing they may not realize is, as you mentioned, the health care benefits come at a cost, and one of those costs is lower wages. Is that correct? Yes. And, you know, most people don't appreciate how much their wages have stagnated because of, of the cost of healthcare. I mean, healthcare costs consistently over the last many decades have risen two to three times the cost of living. Over the long run, uh, that's just not sustainable. Which is one reason why we can't afford our current healthcare system, which is something right. that has been addressed in the previous podcast. But the other thing worth recognizing is unions have a stake in in the in the status quo in several ways one is they bargain for these benefits they feel vested in that bargaining process they've gone on strike for these benefits they feel to give them up would be uh, sort of repudiating that i disagree with that way of thinking because it means that they won't have to ever strike again and not only that when they go on strike, they don't have to worry about losing their benefits, which they do now under the current system. But the other way that unions are invested in the process is you take, for example, the, the fund where I work. There's a whole world of Taft-Hartley and public sector benefit funds where union and management collectively sit at the table and they do RFPs for insurance companies. They do the benefit design. They, they do open enrollments. They have a clear stake in the process. And that can have a kind of a, a corrosive, in my mind, a corrosive 
effect on how people uh, approach their benefit. And there's some unions who, unfortunately, don't look past their own membership. You know, they don't look to, for example, the families of their uh, their workers. Uh, you know, their workers may have great benefits, but maybe not all of the members of the families that are employed have, have access to the same. I mean, uh, you know, you, your kids may not have be able to get into that kind of employment. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's got to change. So. One of the things is that employers would save money if we went to a Medicare for All system. And ideally, they would get some of that back to the employees with increased wages. But my feeling is that unless it is mandated by law that they give some of these savings back to their employees, it won't happen. Based on your experience, what do you think? Actually, there's a lot of discussion about that. There are people who think you can mandate that legislatively, and there are others who think you can only require the parties to bargain over those uh, opportunities. But I think once you take healthcare away from bargaining and you remove that job lock, I think you'll see wages escalate without any additional pressure to require that. That's just my own personal. But, I, you know, I think it's fair to, to, to you start off by saying that, that employers will save. Well, some employers will save money. Uh, some employers, uh, especially smaller employers who are not providing benefits to all of their employees, it will cost them money. I recall one time I was uh, involved with the Vermont AFL-CIO when they were uh, negotiating or, or trying to work out issues around uh, the single payer at the state level in Vermont. I remember this conversation I had with uh, the small businessman, and he was located in a fairly large office complex, I mean, by Montpelier standards anyway. And he said he was he had been pretty vocal about objecting to a payroll tax. He said, if you, if you go with a payroll tax, you'll have everybody in this building against you. And I was kind of puzzled. And I said, well, why? And he said, because everybody in this building gets their health insurance. They're all small businesses, a whole range of small businesses. And I'm sure it wasn't 100% true, but, you know, there were several large public employers in Montpelier, the university and state government and the school districts and their spouses and kids, that's where they were getting their benefits. So they were basically sponging off of current employers and they would pay more if they had to pay a payroll tax. Employers, high-wage employers, where healthcare premiums as a percentage of wages is much smaller, might possibly end up paying more. But anybody who's paying for retiree healthcare would presumably pay less. So, for example, uh, Metro here in DC, uh, I think I calculated one time, they're paying roughly for both actives and retirees together. 
paying close to 20% of payroll uh, for healthcare. That would come down considerably if we went to a Medicare for all system. Yeah, the estimates are maybe about 10% of payrolls, and then they wouldn't right. have the retirees on it. So that would save them quite a bit right. of money. Right, right. I would like to shift gears. And many advocates for Medicare for All argue that healthcare is a human right. And you also say that healthcare can be viewed as an obligation. Could you explain what you mean by that? So I take exception a little bit to uh, the idea of healthcare as a human right or healthcare as a right. I wrote about this uh, some 10 years ago. And it is uh, twofold. First off, when you think of healthcare as a public good, which is the way we need to think about public healthcare, we need to think of healthcare as a public good, then by definition, you're asking people to think about other people. When you say healthcare is a right, then it becomes about me. And that, 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 that's what's wrong with our society right now. It is too me-focused. How much money can I make? So healthcare is a right to me plays into that same logic. And so I posit as a, as a counterpoint to that, the idea of healthcare as an obligation. Healthcare is something that we do to others. The Bible and other religious texts don't say demand healthcare. They say care for the sick. You know, until fairly recently in our history, healthcare was a major, still is somewhat, a major thing that people donated money to. Hospitals were built on charitable donations until uh, the federal government got involved in hospital constructions. And that was because healthcare was something that people felt they needed to do for their community. And I think that's how we ought to regard healthcare as something. But there's another side of that too. There are so many stories of people who have been harmed under the status quo in so many ways. And you just have to wonder, why is it that our society turns a deaf ear to those pleas? You know, what kind of callousness pervades our collective mindset that we can just ignore those people. I mean, how many people die each year for lack of health insurance? I mean, the number ranges anywhere from 20,000 to I think I've seen as high as 60,000 people a year die for lack of health insurance. I mean, that is criminal. And I think if we can kind of change our way of thinking about healthcare as something that we owe each other. I think it's an appeal that is more direct to everyone. I think that's a great point. And it seems it's like fire departments. We feel that everyone needs that protection. So we do it as a public good. We view it I've never really thought of it like that, but we view it as an obligation to others. And you're saying that healthcare has that same obligation. Right. 
And 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 and, and it is very much like the fire department in another respect. I mean, why do you put out a fire? You put out a fire so it doesn't burn the house down that's burning next to it or burn down the neighborhood. And I saw this uh, video many, many years ago. A group of uh, actually union people uh, were sitting around talking and uh, one person said, and by the way, one of these people uh, is a... Uh, very large defender nowadays of the status quo. But anyway, they're they're sitting around and they said, you know, education is a public good. We should regard healthcare as a public good. And after all, I'd rather sit next to somebody that's stupid rather than somebody that's I mean, it's kind of a crass way of thinking about it. But the idea of healthcare as a public good is no more obvious than right now in this pandemic. We are so looking to the federal government for navigating our way out of this crisis that you have this like fundamental contradiction of healthcare being regarded as a private good and people losing their health insurance in the middle of this pandemic because they can't meet the criteria that we've imposed, which is employment or money or whatever it happens to be, instead of just simply making health care available. I mean, you, it's one thing to say we got a vaccine, but if you can't afford to pay for it or you can't afford to go to the hospital because you got sick, you know, that's just not helping with everybody else. I certainly agree with that. And I just can't help thinking, can you imagine if people heard this, if they were calling a 911 dispatcher for a fire, what is the nature <laughs> of your emergency? There's a fire? Okay, what is your um, insurance company and what is your policy number so we know who to contact? I mean, that on its face is just so absurd. We would consider that ridiculous, yet we do that for health care. Mm-hmm. It's just really unimaginable to me. So before we end, is there anything that you would like to add? Well, you know, the topic that we were just discussing about people turning a deaf ear to the sufferings of others is actually especially relevant this month in Black History Month because it really kind of underscores the racism that brought us to the current system that we have. Because the main reason in the early days of healthcare that we don't have a national healthcare system is people simply did not want to provide healthcare to black people. When Truman proposed the national healthcare system, uh, all the key committees were controlled by Dixiecrats. They were not going to do anything that was going to undermine Jim Crow in the South. And we need to understand that, appreciate that, and realize that we need to take care of, of everybody. We are all in this together. It's no accident that we got Medicare and civil rights legislation together. And we need to take care of each other. If there's anything that's going to unite this country, I think getting us to a Medicare for All system where everybody 
is in the same system and move us in that direction. And exactly for that reason, it's one of the reasons why it's so threatening to so many people. Well, I certainly hope that we can overcome that racism, and I hope that we can really create a system that covers everybody and allows anybody to get the health care they need when they need it without having to worry about costs. Jim, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. Well, thank you, Joe. appreciate it very much. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.